Welcome to the Palace Perspective. The Palace Perspective is brought to you by Palace Capital Advisors, a comprehensive wealth management firm with locations in the Northeast, specializing in financial and estate planning solutions, investment management strategies, and family office services for high net worth families across the country. Hello and welcome. Great to see everybody turn out today for our Go Everywhere conversation with Torsten Slock. Apollo Chief Economist and two members of our portfolio management team, Cam Newton, a portfolio manager here, and Mark Bogart, our CIO here at Palace. I'm Rich Mullen, CEO and one of the founders of Palace Capital and your host today. Before we dig in uh, to our outlook here, Happy New Year to everybody, first and foremost. And I'd like to give a brief update of five things that we accomplished here in 2022. Forbes recognized us as a top advisor in America which we were very thankful for. In that same month, Advisor Hub recognized us as the number one advisor to watch. I mentioned these accolades because we think it's a great recognition of our level of service, our client retention, compliance, and the professionalism that we offer our clients. So we're very proud of those accolades. Additionally, we accomplished a couple of other milestones. We expanded our roster of experienced advisors And we opened two additional offices, one in Wakefield, Mass., and one in Newport, Rhode Island. We produced 52 webcasts, which is about one a week last year. And we work hard to take the new regulations and marry that with the insights of our colleagues and provide sufficient content to make good financial decisions for our clients. One of the most exciting uh, accomplishments that we had last year was PCA made a commitment to launch a financial literacy program. We called it the Palace Institute. There'll be a press release coming out tomorrow on that. In a nutshell, the program included 41 students from 28 colleges for our initial student intern program. So let's get back to the economic outlook for 2023. As we move through the discussion, we'd like to invite the audience to participate through questions. You can do that by checking in the bottom portion of your screen. There's a box to ask questions. So let's dig in. Torsten, welcome. We're honored to have you you here. Appreciate you joining us today. Uh, Just a little background here on Torsten. For those of you who have not met Torsten on TV or in the media, I'll share. Torsten's very passionate about his work as an economist. In his early career, he worked for the IMF, covering China and Hong Kong, contributing to the World Economic Outlook. Uh, Later, he joined the OECD, which is a forum where governments of 37 democracies collaborate to promote sustainable growth. He was subsequently a top-ranked institutional investor and is now the chief economist at Apollo. What brings him to Palace here is our relationship with Apollo, one of our key sources of alternative investments. These include such things as private equity credit and real estate. That's what we want to plan on focusing on today. Leading you through the discussion will be my colleague, Mark Bogar, who is, as I said, Palace's chief investment officer, and Cam Newton, one of our portfolio managers. Mark's really looking forward to this. So I'll pass the mic over to him to get things kicked off. Thanks, Mark. Well, great. Well, thanks, Rich, for kicking us off. And thanks for coming today, Torsten. Thank you. Well, let's get right into it. The biggest question on clients' minds as I've had calls over the last few months has been recession. So are we going to have a soft landing? We're going to have a hard landing? Love to get your views on what the implications are for the economy and what implications are for portfolios. So, uh, thanks so much uh, for having me, uh, and I've looked much forward to this discussion. Uh, but the, the short answer to that is that I still think that the most likely scenario is a soft landing. And for portfolios, a soft landing means that earnings growth is going to be stable, and that should be good news for the stock market, 
at least on its own, and also good news for credit, for investment grade, for high yield, and for loans. Because if you don't have a sharp decline in earnings, then you should expect to see, broadly speaking, a stable economic outlook, which generally also is favorable for equities and for credit. And why is it that we should expect a soft landing? Well, last year, the story was inflation is going up, inflation is going up. And this year, the story is inflation is going down, inflation is going down. What we're debating at the moment is how quickly is inflation coming down? There are various views in terms of how quickly inflation will come down. At the moment, inflation at 6.5% is still significantly higher than the Fed's 2% inflation target. Larry Summers is saying it will still take another three years before inflation is down at 2%. Paul Krugman, on the other hand, is saying it will take about 12 months before we're back at 2%. So there's a wide range of views about how quickly inflation is coming down. But it's very clear that the story last year of inflation is going up, up, up is no longer the story of this year where we instead are debating inflation is going down and how long time will it take. And finally, why does that then matter for the discussion about a soft landing or a hard landing? Because if inflation is going down, that means that we're getting to the end of the Fed raising rates. And when we get to the end of the Fed raising rates and we get to the peak in the Fed funds rate, that means that we have more clarity for the stock market, we have more clarity for credit markets and for private credit and for private equity in terms of what will happen. Because last year, we didn't know how much inflation would go up. We didn't know how much rates would go up. So the fact that we have gotten so far to where we are now without a sharp slowdown it brings me to the answer to your question, Mark, that I do still think that now a soft landing is more likely simply because we got to this point where inflation is going down without having seen a significant decline in earnings or significant decline in the economy. Yes. Well, thank you for that. We are definitely in the soft landing camp as well. We have portfolios positioned in quality assets across the equity, fixed income, and private markets for that eventuality, and we're prepared if, if it's worse. But we are also in that soft landing camp as well. Would you mind expanding a little bit on the inflation discussion, just because as you touched on it, but the, the Fed is key there in that, at least in our opinion, if a hard landing is still on the table, it's because the Fed's going to drive us there by taking rates even higher. But there's a lot of real-time data showing inflation's coming down, be it gasoline, be it used car prices, et cetera. So would you mind expanding upon that a little bit? Because that seems to be the most critical variable in the economy today. Absolutely. I completely agree, Mark, that that's the most important thing at the moment. And why is that so important? Because let's imagine that inflation was not coming down. Remember, inflation peaked in June at 9.1%, and today at 6.5%, which was the data for December. So it's been coming down from 9 to around 6 but it's still not all the way down to the Fed's 2% target. And why is that so critical? Because if inflation is still a problem, that means that the Fed still needs to step even harder on the brakes. Remember, the whole goal from the Fed with raising interest rates is to slow down consumer spending, slow down hiring, slow down CapEx spending. And if you are an equity investor or a credit investor, and we are told by the Fed, we are trying to cool down growth in spending, we're trying to cool down growth in CapEx. Well, if that's the case, as an equity investor, I should begin to worry because the Fed is trying really literally to lower earnings for corporate America. So the bottom line is that uh, now we're getting to the peak in inflation and we're getting to the peak in rates. And that means that we no longer need to step so hard on the brakes. And specifically to the question about inflation, 
I'm sorry about the sun coming and going here. So I'm uh, okay. maybe there's a good reflection of the economy. Sometimes <laughs> it's good, sometimes it's bad. But at the moment, exactly. it's generally good. Maybe that's why the sun is shining here. <laughs> but the conclusion to your question about inflation is that there is a very important debate in Fed working papers at the moment about why did inflation go up? And once we understand why it went up in 2022, then we also will understand, well, how long time will it take it to come down? Did inflation go up because of supply chain problems? In other words, we were all sitting at home buying things on Amazon and therefore prices went up because we couldn't get those things and there was a lot of demand for those things. So if inflation went up because there were supply chain problems, then all we need is we need time to straighten out those supply chain problems. We don't need demand destruction if inflation was driven by supply. If on the other hand, inflation was driven higher by demand, say by stimulus checks during the pandemic, by high unemployment benefits, by childcare tax credit, by PPP loans, and by high savings in the household sector. If that was the reason why inflation was high, well, then we do need demand destruction. Then we do need a period where we need to consume less where we need to go less out to restaurants, fly less on airplanes, stay a little bit less at hotels, less to sporting events and concerts, etc. And if inflation was driven by demand, then we do maybe need a higher level of the Fed funds rate. But the good news is that there is a number of Fed papers that try to quantify what is the role of supply in driving inflation higher, what is the role of demand in driving inflation higher. And in particular, some working papers from the San Francisco Fed and the New York Fed, they have found that Two-thirds of the increase in inflation last year was driven by supply. In other words, those are things that will sort themselves out. So in other words, that may be an important reason why inflation is already going down without the economy deteriorating. We've got an inflation from nine to six and a half without the economy really falling apart, but actually still doing quite well. So if that's the case, maybe we can quickly get inflation at least down from these high levels closer to the Fed's target of 2%, maybe not all the way back to 2 but if two-thirds of the way is because of supply chain problems, and we know supply chain problems are getting resolved. Remember during the pandemic at the peak, the cost of getting a container from China to the U.S. West Coast went around for a 40-foot container was around $20,000. Today, that's down now to $1,300. So that's dropped more than 95% in a very short period of time. So we have seen supply chain improvements but we still need to see inflation get all the way back to 2%. So that's why the Fed is so keen on saying, we don't know completely, they don't know, and we don't know, and nobody in the market knows, well, how long time will it take for inflation to come back to 2%? But the Fed is saying, but we have to remain hawkish to make sure that we do get down to 2%. And then once we are 2%, then we will start to turn more dovish. But the fact that they have gone from hiking rates 75, 75 to now 50 and to 25 is a very strong signal in my view that we're getting to a point where we should worry less about the Fed slowing the economy dramatically. So sorry for giving a very long answer, but the bottom line is that the inflation is coming down and it is very important still today. We don't know how long time it will take, but the fact that the trend is my friend and inflation is going lower is very important for financial markets. Yeah, that's very helpful. Um, I just made me think as you were giving your answer, especially being an economist background, how likely is the Fed or how do they balance that real-time data with their studies, with what's going on in like CPI data, that they don't make a mistake, that it seems like the bears out there talk about the Fed's going to make a mistake around all this data. But how, how do they weigh all that? Yeah, I agree. This is a really important debate. And as, as we all know, uh, forecasting is more art than science. It really is what we're trying to do here. And when what you're saying and what I'm saying, trying to combine the bullet points for why do I think something will go up? What are the arguments for that? 
What are the arguments for something will go down? And in this case, what are the arguments inflation will come quickly down? What are the arguments inflation will come slowly down? One argument why we'll see a slow decline in inflation is that wage inflation is still very strong. Another way of looking at that is that, as we all know, there are labor shortages everywhere across, in particular, the service sector in leisure and hospitality. Everyone we, you know and we know, and, and, and you and I have talked about this before, People you know who own restaurants are saying it's hard to find workers. People who own retail companies or firms or stores also say it's hard to find workers. Hotels, restaurants, across the board airlines, it's just difficult still to find workers. So maybe if it is difficult to find workers, maybe that argues for why inflation may be coming down slower. What might be arguing for inflation coming down faster is that the supply chain problems are quickly resolving themselves. We're beginning to see also, a lot of improvements across the board in the delivery times of goods, and that could all also be helping in terms of putting inflation under downward pressure. So there are arguments to both sides, and you're right, the Fed doesn't know, and we don't know, meaning the market doesn't really know either what exactly the speed is here, but it is certainly clear that the Fed going alone, the signal that they're saying they're going from 75 to 50, and now several FOMC members have communicated that they're going to go 25, including Mary Daly and Bostic, at the meeting here on the 1st of February. That's a very strong signal that we are likely to see them start to gradually say, let's take a pause and look around. How is the labor market doing? How is inflation doing? And make sure that we don't make that mistake. But you're absolutely right, Mark. This could be a case where there is a risk that they may be making a mistake. Yes, yes. Well, thank you, you just turn the sun off yet, oh, but absolutely. I can still hear you. Absolutely. So as you're doing that, certainly last year in public markets, you know, I've been investing for over 30 years on behalf of clients and seeing the Fed pivot here, raise rates, equity markets come down, even bond markets come down, where typically bond markets are a nice cushion. You know, your typical 60-40, 60% equities, 40% bonds. All our clients here at Palace are balanced investors, and that public portfolio took a hit. Now, we were able to mitigate some of that on the private side for clients. But can you give us, in, in our view as well, hey, income's earning again on fixed income. So that's great. Stocks are down. So typically, that's a good time to be in stocks. But private markets are also attractive. Can you give us your view on uh, typical asset allocation today? Have, are you making any changes given what's gone on in markets over the last couple of years? And just your thoughts there would be great. Yeah, this is really important. So obviously, 60-40 did not do well last year. It was down 15%. And I, I, all investors, not surprisingly, have been surprised that uh, the whole idea with 60-40 was that bonds was a protection against equities. And equities, so to speak, was a protection against bonds. So the fact that both bond prices and equity prices went down in the same year as much as it did, 15 20%, was, of course, a very significant hit. And certainly, as exactly as we're discussing, uh, warrants some debate at the moment about, okay, so standing here in the beginning of 2023, what should I be doing? The problem is, from my perspective, that inflation in level terms is still 6.5%. So it is just too early to declare victory and say, oh, the inflation problem is solved. I still think that there is a good chance that the stock market and credit could rally from here. But the problem is that the Fed's goal is to get inflation to 2%. So we should all be very much aware that anything we do now has to be viewed through the lens. Is the Fed succeeding with their number one goal of getting inflation back to 2%? Because let's say that the economy now doesn't 
get inflation all the way back to 2%. But let's say that inflation starts stabilizing at, like, say, 4 or 5 It is 100% clear that in that case, the Fed will say, we will not accept inflation at 4 or 5%. Our mandate from Congress is that inflation should be 2 So they will then, in that case, begin to raise rates again, which is obviously not what the market is at all expecting or pricing at the moment. But if wage inflation turns out to be more stubborn or more persistent, and it turns out to be more difficult to find workers, and just as a footnote, why might that be the case? Because remember the studies that show that about 4 million people left the labor force during the pandemic. That means, remember, the number of people that are unemployed today is 6 million so if you have 4 million that left the labor force, that's a lot of people that are no longer in the labor force, most likely because they have some version of long COVID and therefore are most likely not coming back. Well, that means that wage inflation could be a problem for longer than what the Fed and what the market at the moment would like to see. And if that's the case, the Fed could, under some scenarios, begin to raise rates later this year. That's absolutely not my expectation. But if that were to happen, obviously the stock market would not like that. And in that case, Bond markets would not like that either. And you could get another leg down where both bond prices and stock prices go down at the same time. So the way I look at your question is that it is still very early to just say, oh, I'm just going to do the opposite. And if 60-40 didn't work last year, okay, it's going to work this year. The problem is that we're just not quite out of the woods. We would like to see all of us inflation back at 2% before the Fed can declare victory and say, now is the time to say we no longer need to worry about inflation. So the number one issue, therefore, in asset allocation, as I, I know you agree with this, is that we need to have a view on inflation. And if this debate is how quickly is it coming down, how aggressive should I be? You could be very aggressive today and say, I'm buying NASDAQ because I think inflation is going down to 2%. But if you have that view and it turns out to be wrong, of course, then NASDAQ will be selling off because then rates having to go up more to get inflation under control will create a lot of problems, not only for equities and, and NASDAQ, but also for credit. So it becomes very important in public markets to have that debate about it is just, in my view, a little bit too early to take the champagne bottle out and just go back into 60-40. That's, of course, why, of course, alternatives is a place to hide. It's not that alternatives and private equity and private credit is not impacted by everything that's going on, but it's at least much less volatile relative to the 60-40 portfolio. And that's, of course, a way of trying to minimize the volatility in portfolios over time. And I know, of course, you and Cam know this very well, but this is, of course, the issue, and, and we talk about this all the time, but that this is the issue that potentially can be a risk if it turns out to be wrong, namely that inflation is going to come down. In other words, if it takes a longer time for inflation to come down, we run the risk that this might have a more bumpy road ahead of us for the 60-40 portfolio. Well, thank you. Yeah, so the phrase we're using around here a lot is cautiously optimistic. So our base case is soft landing, cautiously optimistic, but we've got a well-diversified balanced portfolio across many different asset classes, some with inflation protection, some without, some with risk on. So we have a little bit of everything so we can be balanced through time to meet those most client goals. So we definitely agree Torsten, I think um, Cam that makes has complete sense. Yes, yes. And I think Cam has a couple of questions she can ask you. Yeah, to kind of switch gears a little bit. When the war in Ukraine escalated, we felt the pain at the pump. The price of crude oil skyrocketed. And now we're seeing electricity prices increase. And Biden signed an executive order to ban the imports of Russian oil, natural gas and coal back in March. But how is that going to affect us looking into 2023? Yeah, this is very important. Energy prices uh, obviously have been through quite a roller coaster ride after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the, the good news is that it has been getting better, in particular in Europe, uh, because the Europeans, which six months ago looked uh, 
very unprepared, let's put it that way, uh, for what was going on, have been able to, at least for now, uh, and also helped by a mild winter in Europe, uh, to get through this without a dramatic um, uh, increase in, in energy prices that was turned out to be much more temporary now that energy prices have come down. Uh, looking into this year, to your question, Cam, I worry more about the Chinese reopening, uh, that if China is reopening and we begin to see China demand more commodities, demand more energy, that would then begin to put some more upward pressure on commodity prices. So there is um, a risk that's beginning to emerge to the discussion that uh, Mark and I just had about the issues about the outlook for inflation, that if China opens up and that begins to push up commodity prices, it's not happening yet, interestingly, suggesting that this may be a little bit of a delayed effect. But once that does happen, and I would expect that to begin to happen, then that could also begin to throw a little bit of a wrench into the Fed outlook, which gets back to the 60-40 discussion, that it's a little bit too early to just go back to 60-40, because the risk here is that if inflation does go up more as China reopens, then that would then come with associated risk that the Fed might then have to either keep rates at least elevated for longer, or in the worst case, may have to hike rates even further. And that would, of course, bring us back to a scenario where both bond prices are going down and stock prices are going down. So your question about commodity prices, and in particular energy prices, is particularly relevant for asset allocation as we look into this year. And the uncertain factor at this point, in particular for commodities, is what will happen on the China reopening front. How much of a boost to commodity prices will it be? Uh, because this also becomes important for investors who can allocate money to commodities because commodity investments could then turn out to be giving good returns in 2023 simply because of China reopening. Remember, China accounts for roughly half of all commodity demands in, in a lot of different commodity baskets. So that means that there could be a chance that commodity prices could see quite a tailwind as we go through the coming quarters simply because of China reopening. That makes sense. And then, you know, talking about China um, and the volatility, uh, you know, as a portfolio manager here, I'm at the desk constantly monitoring the markets and looking at the increased volatility in the last few years. And how do you see volatility, you know, going forward into 2023? Yeah, so I, I think that one thing that we should talk about that's particularly um, noteworthy on that front is, of course, the debt ceiling. Uh, as we know, all of us, uh, the, the political situation in D.C. has just caused a backdrop where it might be somewhat more complicated to get both Republicans and Democrats to agree. And in particular, the, uh, at least in my personal opinion, lack of unity in the Republican Party is creating some issues in terms of is it possible to get a debt ceiling voted through and under what conditions and are the Democrats willing to have conditionality associated with the debt ceiling negotiations. So there's a lot of different dimensions to that. But the problem is that it looks like fairly substantial gridlock where we stand. So I would say that, uh, strictly speaking, the debt ceiling is only hit in September. Uh, but the decision has to be made before July. It's already in the news as we speak, but in the next six months, uh, a key driver domestically uh, of volatility is most likely to be the debate about what will happen with the debt ceiling and will we raise the debt ceiling in time. I absolutely believe that we will, but it certainly is um, looking a little bit more bumpy on the road here ahead on that front than it has done uh, in previous episodes, most noteworthy here back in 2011. Other things that are creating some risks on the outlook is, of course, the Chinese reopening we just spoke about. And the final thing is the topic this year here with Japan leaving yield curve control for 
potentially behind. Remember in Japan, they're trying to keep Japanese rates down. That's why the Bank of Japan is saying we are intervening to make sure that Japanese interest rates don't go up and they stick at the yield curve control, which is another way of saying they're targeting a specific level of yields. But if the Japanese Central Bank and the Bank of Japan begins to say we no longer want to target a specific level of yields and Japanese interest rates go up, why would that be a problem for U.S. markets? Well, the biggest problem is that Japan is the biggest owner of U.S. treasuries. They own about 1.2 trillion in treasuries. So the problem is that if Japan suddenly sees higher interest rates and higher yields in their own backyard, Japanese investors might then turn around and say, well, why am I buying U.S. assets if I can get a high yield in my own backyard in yen? So that might begin to run some risk to U.S. Treasury rates going up, Treasury yields going up, if the Japanese begin to sell Treasuries to buy Japanese JGBs. That could also be an element of volatility. And the third and final, fourth and final thing is, of course, that there's still a lot of geopolitical risk, of course, still in Ukraine, Russia, uh, but also geopolitical risk with the energy transition in Europe um, that also could create uh, some some number of bumps on the run. All those things and that long list of things is just a laundry list is on top of what we spoke about first, namely the economic outlook, which on its own also has a number of risks that we could have a harder landing that's not the baseline scenario. We could also have that we don't have a landing and inflation continues to be a problem. So there's no shortage of topics uh, to talk about for investors. And that's why uh, what you and Mark are doing in terms of protecting portfolios as much as we can and making sure that they are stable and steady. There's no way we can protect ourselves against the downside always. But there's certainly a, a good argument here for saying, let's just be a little bit more conservative and make sure that we spread out over various, as I know you do, spread out over various asset classes and make sure that if something goes down, then hopefully we'll win on other things and hopefully we'll have a more balanced outlook. And then once we all feel that the uncertainties and the, the things that can create volatility, once those things look more clear and look better, then maybe we can begin to tilt a little bit more towards risky assets and take some more risk. But it is, in my view, just a little bit too early to do that at this point because of all these things that are creating so much volatility, as, as you are asking about, Cam. Great. Well, great. Well, thank you, Torsten. And just want to remind the audience, please send your questions in. We've gotten a bunch already, but please do send in some more. We've touched on a few, uh, but one that's, I think, it's a good segue off what you were just talking about, Torsten, is international markets, uh, the combination of international earnings growth, GDP, combined with the dollar. The dollar was very strong for most of last year, but that seemed to reverse in Q4. I've heard some strategists talk about, well, the U.S. interest rates are, have topped out. That is ending soon. You've seen some other economies starting to tighten. Maybe that those currencies may strengthen. Also, potential recovery, whether it's China, whether it's Europe eventually, potentially after Russia-Ukraine slowdown. So love to get your thoughts on international markets. Should that be? We typically do have international as part of the allocation here at Palace at the margin. We've been adding to it. But love to hear your thoughts on international markets and the dollar. Yeah. So I think that it makes good sense to uh, that what you have been doing, uh, because exactly China reopening should be good for Chinese and Asian equities and also emerging market equities more broadly, because if commodity prices do begin to go up, they will also be benefiting Latin America, anyone who's a commodity exporter. So that should be helpful across the board, not only for China, but also for EM, in particular EM exporters of commodities. And for Europe, for a while, as we spoke about a minute ago, it was most of last year, the outlook for Europe was, let's just put it the way it is, very grim because they were having significant problems with sanctions, less exports to China, less exports to Russia, even less exports to Ukraine. And they also had an energy transition that they were 
utterly unprepared for coming. And that's why they had to do a lot of adjustments and their outlook for the better part of 2022 was just really negative for Europe. The good news is that Europe has been able to do some of these things a little bit faster, at least than what I would have expected. So that means that the outlook for Europe, and that's why international, in particular, European equities and international assets have outperformed more recently, because they have now turned out to deal with some of these things a little bit better than what we thought just three months ago. So that means that the outperformance of European equities and European credit is noteworthy. And I think that will continue because we will likely see that with the US still doing well and Europe not being as bad, but being priced really, really bad, I still think that there is now a bit more upside in particular to European assets, in particular European risky assets. And finally, for Eastern Europe, which is also, of course, emerging markets, if Europe does better, and generally speaking, EM Asia also and Latin America EM also does better, that should also argue for Eastern Europe EM or EMEA also doing generally better. So there are some reasons driven mainly by Europe being not as bad as we had feared and China reopening and also the US not yet having a landing or not even a soft landing, but even having a landing, all that argues for maybe growth globally is actually going to do a little bit better. And therefore, what you've been doing, in my view, makes complete sense. Because if we are now, and this is what was in the front page of the Financial Times today, that the IMF, which is where I used to work, they are now saying that they're actually upgrading their forecast to global growth for 2023. And that's noteworthy because that's telling you that maybe global growth and the global outlook, in particular for international markets, which, by the way, still look relatively cheap compared to valuations of the S&P 500 and NASDAQ, you still get that the PE ratios abroad, in particular in Europe, but also in Japan and the emerging markets generally are lower than the PE ratios you're having in the US. So there probably is more value abroad than what there is in the US at the moment. And all that, both from a value perspective, international looks more interesting, and also the tailwind from growth uh, globally looking more interesting. It does argue, therefore, for international looking more interesting than it's done in a long time. That doesn't mean there's plenty of things to do in the US, of course, that are very interesting in many different ways. Again, in particular, so uh, my job is in the alternatives and in the private assets, private equity and private credit, of course, continues to see a lot of opportunities given the distress that is out there. Uh, but the conclusion still is that um, when specifically to the international space, it is clear that uh, there's a number of tailwinds coming at the moment. And as you're answering that question, we got another question about maybe the dollar specifically. We tend to think of yeah. um, the dollar weakening. Hey, so why is the dollar weakening is a specific question. And we tend to think of currencies as interest rate differentials, differentials in inflation, differentials in economic growth. And a lot of times to me, it comes down to that interest rate differential is the most simple one to think of. And that's where I've been thinking, oh, if the Fed's done, other economies are starting to raise, that's a simple answer. But do you have a more expansive answer or more, more interesting things you're looking at on the dollar front? I 100% hundred percent agree with that. I have a little Mickey Mouse model of exchange rates. And the main driver on the right-hand side is interest rate differentials. So exactly as you just said, I completely agree. If the Fed is soon done and the ECB is not done, well, that means that the euro should be going up. Likewise, in Japan, overnight, the story of the day, well, the Bank of Japan are thinking about raising interest rates because they want inflation to come down. They have barely started raising interest rates or communicating the interest rates. They have expanded the band on yield curve control a little bit. But if more interest rate increases are coming in Japan and the Fed is done, that also would argue for the yen going up or in FX terms, dollar yen moving lower. So. I agree. I think that the dollar is about to go down further. And that also, of course, argues on top of 
everything we just spoke about for international assets potentially outperforming. Right, great. Well, thank you, Torsten. To keep those questions coming, and I think Cam has another one for us. Yeah, and talking about Japan and their rates going up in the U.S., uh, we have a client asking, what advice would you give to a person who has invested a high portion of his or her liquidity bucket in treasury bills? Is it time to get out? Yeah, so it is very tempting. Let's be totally clear that T-bills at the moment are basically giving us four, four and a half, five percent and if we still move a little bit higher, then we get all the way up to 5%. So you could say, why don't I just put all my money into T-bills and play golf for the next two years? Well, the problem is that if you play golf for the next two years, uh, the most likely scenario is, at least in my opinion, that then you will have T-bills yields coming down. So more importantly, perhaps, is that there are all the opportunities that are there at the moment you will have missed out on. So that's another way of saying that, remember, yes, T-bills are very juicy and, and people should certainly put some money into T-bills uh, at the moment because yields are so interesting. But it's also very important to think about, well, why are T-bills at 5% or going to go up to 5%? Well, that's because there's something else that is creating distress. That's why there's something else that's creating cheaper valuations in a number of markets that therefore potentially could yield more than 5% that you're getting in T-bills. So I would view not a T-bill 5% or 4.5%, 5% in isolation. I would view that with a perspective of saying, what are the reasons why T-bills are trading where they are? And if those reasons suddenly present some new investment opportunities to me in terms of, well, what's going on in the parts of financial markets that are distressed as a result of the Fed trying to raise the cost of capital and trying to get inflation to come down, maybe I should be dipping my toes and allocating some money in those parts, say in high yield or in areas, even in IG, but also parts of equities that still look relatively cheap at the moment. So I think about that question in a much broader context of not only saying, wow, there's one asset here where I for sure can get a certain level of yield, but really view that in the context of, well, what are the other assets out there? And if they are all trading very cheap, shouldn't I then begin, let's say I have a dollar cost averaging approach, which I think is, as usual, the most intelligent approach. And I know you agree with this, namely that if I think that there's something over the next six months that begins to look more interesting and I have $600, maybe I allocate $100 the first month, $100 the following month, and $100 for each of the following four months. I may not be able to capture the bottom exactly, but at least I know something is moving, namely inflation is coming down. And if I begin to allocate a little bit more to risk because inflation is coming down, and the risk meaning here equities or S&P 500 and, and credit, both high yield and IG and even loans, well, if that's the case, then I at least might consider that I could get more than the 5% that I simply get from just putting all my money into T-bills. And think about also the final, and not to overcomplicate the discussion here, but think about the Fed work. And I know you guys also look at this, and we have talked about this before, the Fed working papers that look at the R-star concept, the concept of what is the level of the Fed funds rate in the long run? In other words, where is it that we are going? Today, the Fed funds rate is four and a half. That means that monetary policy is very restrictive. And if I take $100, I can put it in and get 4.5%. But over time, the Fed working papers that look at this say, well, we should be getting back to 2.5%, not to zero, but back to 2.5%. That means that if I put money into 45 and I may be getting that for the next, say, six, even nine months. But on the other side, when the Fed begins to cut rates, and the market is expecting the Fed to cut rates in Q3 of this year, well, then I will begin to have a lower return. And then I may regret 
that I didn't invest in all those distressed and opportunities and all those opportunities, generally speaking, that we're here at the moment when the treasury rate in the front end or the T-bill rate was at four and a half percent. So I would, I'm sorry for the very long answer, but I would allocate something to T-bills because I think that makes a lot of sense. But I would also begin to think about, okay, but if inflation is coming down, then maybe I should begin to, again, do dollar cost averaging and begin to allocate to some more some some more money to risk. Or, or let me put it this way. Sorry, sorry, now I'm giving a very long answer. In my old job with Deutsche Bank, for 10 years after the financial crisis, uh, I was going around, particularly Europe, but around the world, and everyone I met everywhere, they said, oh, after 2008, for the following 10 years, everyone said, oh, it's so boring. Rates are so low. Spreads are so tight. Vol is so low. There's nothing to invest in. And now when I ask many of these people, and many are my good friends, and say, okay, so now the environment is different. What are you doing? Um, because you said it was boring and you didn't do anything for 10 years. So what about now? Uh, and the response I get is, no, 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 I'm not doing anything. This is crazy. And I say, well, we got to be intellectually honest. You can't do nothing when it's boring and you can't do nothing when it's wild. I mean, I know it's difficult and you're paid to take risk. And there's a lot of risks out there that we have talked about for the last uh, 40 minutes here. But I do think that uh, we need to be clear headed and say, OK, uh, maybe there are some risks. But uh, what is it that I'm waiting for? Anyone who's investing today should say, well, what am I waiting for? And if I'm waiting for, which is what I'm waiting for, inflation to come down, I know that's happening. Okay, but then I probably should begin to allocate more as inflation gradually ticks lower over the coming three to six months. Hey, thank you. And one more question also hitting on rates. Um, you know, with interest rates rising, U.S. home affordability um, has been worsening. And we have clients that are looking to buy second homes, or you know, looking to move to more tax-advantaged states. Uh, with all this, is you know, the current going on is renting uh, the best way to go right now. Yeah, that's of course a tough, uh, tough thing for the housing market because think about it, if we just back up and think about what's going on, the Fed is raising interest rates to cool down inflation. When the Fed raises interest rates, not surprisingly. It impacts the interest rate sensitive components of GDP and the most interest rate sensitive component of GDP is housing. The next one is autos, cars, and the final one is durable goods more broadly, because all these things require financing. The issue is that these things only make up 20% of GDP, whereas the service sector, meaning all of us going to restaurants, flying on airplanes, to sports, concerts, everything, hotels, the service sector makes up 80% of GDP. So the challenge for the Fed is that the interest rate sensitive components of GDP, they continue to not do well, but the service sector is just not slowing down quite yet. So the risk to that question is that maybe we need to see a bit more downside in the housing market before we get to the bottom of the situation in housing where we will begin to see things turn around. And therefore, to your great question, Cam, where you should begin to think about now we're at the bottom, maybe now I should begin to do something differently. The only thing that has helped a little bit more recently is that long interest rates and mortgage rates have come down. And in fact, that meant today, I don't know if you saw, I'm sure you saw this, the NAHB, National Association of Home Builder Index, actually went up. That was the first time since the Fed started raising rates that that actually began to go higher. That's giving me a little bit of confidence that maybe we're getting closer to turning the corner on the housing market. But it is still a little bit too early because the unemployment rate has still been low. And if we don't see the unemployment rate continue to be low, but if it actually starts to move up, then we may also begin to see a bit more stress in the housing market. So it is still also a bit early in housing to declare victory and say, oh, now is the time to go out and 
buy a lot more homes because it could be that there's more downside. But, but it's very clear that we have already seen and are seeing as we speak a fairly significant adjustment in the housing market. So I do think that, the, let's just put it this way, 2023 is the year to begin to look around and hopefully find some good deals in housing simply because there is this uh, situation where some are forced buyers and forced sellers of homes and if they're forced sellers of homes then that would of course imply therefore that there could be some better pricing in the housing market this year at least relative to um where we were last year great thank you all right well i think we have time for for one or two more here in the last few minutes but one that i have is oh any new dynamics in washington for investors with republicans taking the house so our, our clients always ask about What's going on in Washington? What does that mean for me? And love to get your view on, on how, how things may or may not have changed in Washington recently. Yeah, I think that what has happened in the last few weeks, the bottom line, at least for me personally, and, and this is not, I'm not here expressing Apollo's views or anyone else's view, this is my personal views. I think that the, there is just a higher chance of gridlock. And gridlock means basically no new initiatives, or at least very few new initiatives on really anything on taxes, nothing I expect to change on immigration, nothing I expect to change on climate, nothing I expect to change, really no expectations of any major policy proposal for the next two years. The only impact and the only reason why that topic is so absolutely critical is because of this issue with the debt limit. I would also, have, I mean, even just a few weeks ago, have said, oh, this is not going to be a major deal because normally this is all solved so quickly. But the risk today, of course, is that this is potentially something that could become a major issue, in particular as we get into the second quarter of this year. I know when I look at my Bloomberg screen today, and I know we have also spoken about this before, I mean, there's just not much today that's suggesting that there's anything here that's showing up in markets today as a function of the debt ceiling negotiations that are going to come. But um, I do think that the main thing to watch, and I do know that the media will be full of this in all directions in the next six months, uh, will be negotiations about the debt ceiling because it's such an important issue. And unfortunately, as we all know, it has the important consequence that uh, if the U.S. defaults and doesn't pay their debt on, on time, it will obviously be a very, very, very serious issue for financial markets. That's why I don't expect that to happen. Uh, but it is, um, for better or worse, uh, we need to uh, sharpen our pencils and, and spend more time on that topic, uh, even if we love it or hate it. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. We will definitely keep an eye on that. Thank you. I think we've come to the, the end of our formal question piece, and maybe we'll kick it back to Rich to uh, close us out. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Cam and Torsten. We covered a lot of information here, uh, but I think we can come away with a couple of takeaways. Uh, one would be stay invested, stay diversified. We're not expecting a repeat of the 2022 performance. I also feel like our base case here is a soft landing. Um, that is based on the fact that we all kind of believe we may have reached peak inflation and peak interest rates. So uh, those are two things that kind of lead us to that conclusion. Also, you know, we want to remind ourselves that the market tends to anticipate the recovery before the recovery is fully underway. So we should see that reflected positively in our portfolios as the market kind of anticipates perhaps rates coming down and inflation following it. So today covered so much, Torsten, Cam, Mark, this has been enormously helpful. And thank you again for your insights. Uh, we recorded today's session. So if you'd like to share this content with colleagues, you can access it on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, or the Palace website. So keep that in mind. 
The preceding information is for general educational purposes only. It's not intended to be investment advice and is not specific to any individual's personal situation. Any decision about investing should be undertaken only after careful consideration of the investment's risks, costs, liquidity or lack thereof, and the investor's time frame. Please remember that past performance may not be indicative of future results. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk and there can be no assurance that the future performance of any specific investment, investment strategy, or product referred to directly or indirectly in this newsletter or podcast will be profitable or equal any corresponding indicated historical performance levels. The investment advice is offered through Palace Capital Advisors, LLC, our registered investment advisor.